If you've got your Bibles open, let's turn to Revelation chapter 4. And I'll just pray for us and then we'll get going. Lord, thank you for another opportunity to be in your word. And Lord, your word reveals who you are to us. And it's really exciting to see more of your character, more of your power, more of your glory and splendor, more of your humility, more of your grace more of your love revealed through these passages, Lord, through these chapters. So we just pray that you help us to understand. Lord, I pray that your spirit will give us understanding because these things are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit or the things of God. They are foolishness to him. So help us to have that supernatural insight to be able to understand spiritual truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to jump in. I'm just going to read Revelation chapter 4 today. And then we'll explain what's happening. We'll go through it. So, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So, over the last couple of weeks we've been in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and we're seeing that it's like a turning point in the book of Revelation. It shows the church in verse 4 where Jesus says, come up here. The church goes extraterrestrial. We go from earth to heaven, like we leave this planet. We leave terra firma. <laughs> and that's a picture of what the rapture is going to be like. It's a prelude, a preview of coming attractions. John the Apostle was given this experience to show us what we are going to experience. It's pretty cool, right? Eh? So I spent the last two weeks looking at what the resurrection is, 
and why we need a new body, what the rapture is, and the scriptural reasons why the rapture, I believe, should happen before the tribulation starts. So, Revelation 4 through 19 is a section concerned with God's judgment upon the world, which happens before Jesus comes back. So it's the tribulation, the great tribulation, also called the messianic woes. And as I said, this happens after the rapture of the church. So during the tribulation, God's judgments are announced by a seven-sealed scroll, and we'll get there next week in chapter 5. We'll learn about the scroll. And then there's seven trumpet judgments, seven signs, seven bowls that pour out God's wrath, and then the end comes, and Jesus comes back to earth to rule and to reign. Now, in chapter 4, it introduces us to the place where judgment comes from, which is the throne of God. So we're going to skip chapter 4, verse 1, because we covered that in the last couple of weeks. So chapters 2 and 3 gave us a panoramic view of the church age, showing the seven stages that the church would go through. But now we come to after these things in verse 1, and the scene shifts from earth to heaven. And that's the thing about the Word of God. When Jesus speaks in the parables, he talks about natural things, and then he switches over to heavenly things. He uses the natural things to try and explain heavenly things, things we can't understand to try and help us to understand things we can't see, we can't usually understand. So this is showing us what it's going to be like for us to be in heaven. So I'll start reading from verse 1 and 2, just get the context. So after these things, after the church age, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on it. So picture yourself being John. Jesus says, come up here and I will show you what will happen after these things. As soon as Jesus gives that command, John's. Whether it's in body or just his spirit and soul, I do not know. No one knows. Even Paul, who had a similar experience, he didn't know whether his body had departed or not. But John was not on Patmos anymore, not in his mind anyway, and he was in heaven. And he's describing to us the best way he can, as he's led by the Spirit, what he saw. Now, in verse 2 it says, I was in the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? John had already said he was in the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 10. But this is different. This is a different experience. This is like an out-of-body experience. Or maybe God took his whole body. We don't know. But John is now in heaven. He's seeing heaven, and he's seeing things from a heavenly perspective. It's like he's completely enveloped by the Spirit and translated both to a different location and to a different point in time. I believe he's actually placed into eternity. And from eternity, you can see everything at once. You can see the end from the beginning. So John is given this eternal perspective, and he sees everything unfold all at once. And the Holy Spirit 
also gives John, of course, the understanding of what he's seeing and what he needs to write down. So it says, A throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. It's important that we realize that in heaven, everything centers around the throne of God. What's the first thing that John says that he sees? It's not the streets of gold. It's not the tree of life. It's not the river. It's not his brothers and sisters who have perished and now he's seeing again. I got to heaven and I gave my sister a big hug. No, I saw the throne of God and God sitting on the throne. This is the center of everything. This is where everything starts. This is where all the decisions are made. And the book of Revelation, like no other book of the Bible, makes it very clear that everything originates, emanates from God's throne. Everything is centered around who sits on that throne, and it's his power and his will. Now, it says there that God's throne is set or planted. That means it's not going anywhere, and it's not going to change. So this is our security. No matter how unstable things may appear down here on earth, we know that God is in control. He loves us and that he will only allow those things to happen to us that will cause us to become more like Jesus. And that's uh, Romans 8, 28, 29. So verse 3, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So, John doesn't try to describe the form of God. You know, God had big ears and a long nose. No. He uses these symbols to try and communicate the character of God, the essence of God, the glory of God, the splendor of God. And he doesn't try to use human terms. He just uses these symbols. He uses jewels to try and approximate, to give us an idea of God's divine essence, that is God's divine character. So the first jewel that John uses is the jasper stone, and today we understand this to be a diamond. That's what the consensus in the commentators is, that back then this would have been understood to be a diamond. So John is telling us that seeing God on the throne was like seeing a multifaceted, sparkling diamond, and the light is coming from within. The light is coming from within this beautiful diamond this white light. So what do you think this pure white light symbolizes? It's purity, yeah. God's absolute righteousness, his perfect character. So John is using this symbol of this jewel, this diamond, to show us what it would be like to be confronted with the flawless character of God, his perfection. Now the next stone is a sardis stone, and this is a ruby. As you know, rubies are red. <laughs> Again, this ruby is multifaceted and glowing from within, and it has this beautiful red light emanating or coming from within it. So what do you think the red symbolizes? Blood. Yeah, the blood of Jesus. So we have the diamond and the ruby. We have the pure white light and we have the red light so we have God's perfect character and then next to that is the red representing the blood of Jesus 
So God's perfect, flawless character has been satisfied with man, who is sinful, by the blood of Christ. So even the precious stones symbolize the work of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross. So that's how I understand that, and that's how most of the commentators also understand that too. John is, first of all, seeing God's purity and his power and his authority, but also he sees the representation of the blood of Jesus, representing our forgiveness, our acceptance before the throne. And then, continue on in verse 3, it says, And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. So, what do you think the rainbow represents? His grace, his mercy, and his covenant that God made with man. Where did we first hear about the rainbow? After the flood, yeah. So, the rainbow is God's sign of his covenant that he would never again destroy the world with water. He would never again flood the earth completely with water. And that as long as the earth remains, there would continue to be the four seasons and the basic ecology that sustains life. In other words, although we are damaging the ecology of this planet by the things we do, God has promised that he won't let us destroy it to the point where we can't survive. So we don't have to fear the planet you know, being destroyed. God is going to keep his covenant promise that he will sustain this planet so he will always sustain us while we're living here until he comes back to finish things off. And when he comes back, he's going to redo it. So he's going to remake the earth to live in for that thousand years. So we have this emerald glowing green from within as a symbol of? Green is a symbol of what? Life. You look outside, you see green, oh, it's alive. If it's brown, it's dead. So pretty simple. Green is like the source of life. God is the author of life. He's the originator of life. And also, for me, it represents grace as well. That rainbow is grace. So what is God revealing to us? Why is God revealing these things to us? Because what God is about to reveal to us in the next few verses will show us that he wants us to know that even in the midst of terrible judgment, as the book of Revelation says will come, there will be mercy before judgment and also mercy during judgment. God will always remember mercy. It's part of his character. For those who turn to him, okay? There's no mercy for those who don't turn to him. But for those who turn to him, he gives chance after chance after chance. So for me, that's really exciting. It's amazing that God is so patient that even in the tribulation period where God is judging man's sin, God is showing mercy. He's giving people another chance to come to him. And as we get into the book of Revelation, there's a multitude of people who come to know the Lord as their Savior. Uh, verse 4, And around the throne were 24 thrones. So around God's awesome throne are 24 smaller thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So, numbers in the Bible. 
Numbers are important. We know that certain numbers mean different things because of the way they're used in the Bible. For example, seven is a number of perfection or completeness. Three is a number of perfect union, as seen in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Twelve is the number of government. There's twelve apostles. There's the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve is used in connection with government. So here we have the number 24. Does anyone know what the number 24 represents in the scriptures? It's priests. It's priests. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus and 1 Chronicles 24, the priests were always divided into 24 courses or groups or rotations. So they'd each have their go throughout the year. So roughly two weeks each throughout the year. And Revelation 1.6 and 1 Peter 2.9 tell us that we are kings and priests to God. We are his special people. So Revelation 1, 6 first, chapter 1, verse 6 first. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And First Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are priests. The number 24 represents in the scriptures the courses of the priests, okay, the 24 courses. So it gives us a clue here, all right? We'll come back to that in a sec. So we want to figure out who might these 24 elders be. Some people say, some commentators say that they could be glorified human beings. Some people say they could be angelic beings. But taking all things into consideration, I believe that the elders represent God's people, the church. And I'll try and show that to you. I'll try and prove that to you. So, first of all, elders. Elders are used to represent the people of God. Paul referred to the elders of the church, for example, and also in the Old Testament. The people of God were called elders there as well. And angels are not called elders. So that's one proof that it's not angels on these thrones. And clothed in white robes, well, sometimes angels can be presented in white robes or are shown to be wearing white robes like Mark 16.5, John 20, verse 12, and Acts 1.10. But saints also have white robes, and you find that in Revelation 6.11, 7.9, and 13-14. So why would the saints, the church, be pictured as wearing white robes? Why are we shown to be wearing white robes? If this is really us, why are we wearing white robes? Well, it's representative of the imputed righteousness of Christ, Isaiah 61.10 and Revelation 3.5-18. We are in Christ. The white robes characterize the righteousness of Christ. That is clothed upon us, or put upon us, all of us who have put our faith in him. It's a symbol of his righteousness that covers our sin. So a couple of verses to help us understand that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Where? It's in him. It's in Christ. Okay? We are righteous as we are in Christ. And Ephesians 4.24, And that you might put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. So again, in true righteousness and holiness. And then we have Philippians 3.9, And be found in him, that is in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, my good deeds, my best efforts, but which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. So not my righteousness, my filthy rag righteousness, but God's perfect righteousness. And another one there is Romans 4.3. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. So this is the way it's always been right from the beginning. No one has ever been made righteous apart from faith. We can never ever be good enough. We can't earn our way into heaven. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So faith is the one thing that you can do, but still have done nothing. Does that make sense? Faith is the one thing that you can do, but still have done nothing. It's not a work. Because faith is receiving. Faith is receiving a gift. Receiving a gift is not doing work. So when we're in heaven, those in heaven, us, will understand this very, very well. And we're going to see that as we continue in this book. We're going to see that it's not anything to do with our efforts or our strength or our wisdom. It's all about God. God gets all the glory. So these white robes, in other words, God sees us as being perfect, as having lived a perfect life as having kept the whole law. Isn't that amazing? And how can that be possible? Well, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's called imputed righteousness. Jesus transferred his righteous life into our account And that gives us right standing with God to us who accept it as a gift by faith. Now, what did we give Jesus in return? (laughs) Well, we took our dirty clothes off and gave our dirty clothes to Jesus. And now Jesus is got all this sin on him and God the Father punishes Jesus because of all my sin and your sin. But what Jesus did, he took his perfect clothes off, his clean clothes, and gave them to me. It's like that. So I get to wear the clean clothes. I'm seen as pure and holy and righteous. And Jesus, he gets all the dirty clothes and he suffers for them, for those sins. Really unfair, but I'm just so grateful that God was willing to do that for me. And in verse 4, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, Angels in the Bible never wear crowns, but believers are often described as wearing crowns. And here's some examples for you. 1 Corinthians 9.25 And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to attain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable 
crown. And 2 Timothy 4.8 Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And 1 Peter 5.4 And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So there's many different crowns. So what kind of crown is John talking about here? What kind of crown is being worn by the 24 elders? Well, it's the Stephanos crown. It's the crown that a victor or a winner in the ancient Olympic Games would wear. So this is a crown that you would wear if you won the race. It's a golden crown for the overcomer. And this is another reason that 24 elders can't be angels, because angels don't have to fight in the arena of this world and overcome. Remember who the overcomer is? It's us. How do we know? 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And I like that. And this is the victory that has overcome. That's past tense. We have already overcome because we have Jesus living in us. We just need to walk in that victory. So the overcomer is the believer, and this is the crown that will be given to every believer. We have all overcome. It's given to us simply because we put our faith in Jesus. Out of all the crowns that we might get, this one is the most important because if you don't have this one, you won't be in heaven. And then it says also in verse 4, And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones 24 elders sitting. So 24 thrones around God's glorious throne. (laughs) I find this quite humbling. It's a beautiful picture. Around God's also magnificent throne are 24 lesser thrones. So redeemed, glorified man sits enthroned with Jesus. Lesser thrones, yes, but still thrones. What right do we have to be sitting on thrones in heaven? That's my looking at that. It's like I have no right to be sitting on a throne in heaven. But did you realize that we are not only priests, we are also kings. We are joint heirs with Christ. And we will reign with him. Angels never have this privilege. Humans don't deserve this privilege, but that's the privilege we are given. The church will be alongside Jesus, ruling the world. So those verses, Romans 8, 17. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. And 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So we are kings and priests, and we're sitting in heaven on these thrones as a symbol of reigning with him. Now, another hint of who these 24 elders are, is given in the next chapter. We'll study this more next week. But I'll just read Revelation 5, 9 and 10. This is the 24 elders singing. 
No one else can sing this song. This is only the 24 elders singing. It says, For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So, the 24 elders cannot be angels because angels cannot say they have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And it's all nations, tribe and tongue, all the language groups, all the nationalities. So, that's why I believe the 24 elders spoke as representatives of all God's people, the great company of the redeemed, the church, taken up to be in heaven. There are more than 24 tribes, tongues, and nations. <laughs> so these 24 people aren't the only people there. These 24 elders represent the church in its entirety. It's like the seven churches in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. There weren't just seven churches, but the seven is the number of completion. And they represent all the church, the whole church. So here we are, the church in heaven, fulfilling our role as kings and priests for God. Our first priestly duty will be praying, I believe, for the believers in the seven-year tribulation, because it says later on we're going to be offering up incense, which is the prayers of the saints. Also, a priest just doesn't pray for the salvation of those who believe, but they also pray for judgment on those who martyr them, on those who persecute and mistreat God's people. God sent his ambassadors, the church. God has sent us to this world to call them to come back to himself, to try and reconcile them back to God. But the world has largely rejected this message given through the church. Now, as a parallel, Israel was also judged for not believing all the prophets and other messengers sent to them. Israel persecuted their prophets, they killed them, and then God judged them, and they were scattered for almost 2,000 years. This world has been, for the last 2,000 years, killing, torturing, imprisoning, beating, and abusing God's ambassadors to this world. This world has been abusing the church, just trying to destroy this church, but God has given us that promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and the more Satan and the world tries to destroy the church the more it grows and the stronger it becomes and verse 5 and from the throne proceeded lightning thunderings and voices seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God so there's a change here we saw Previously, in the last couple of verses, the beautiful and awesome representations of the splendor of God, his righteousness, of God the Father being satisfied with the blood of Christ, a reminder that God keeps his covenant promises. But now, something is different. Something is different. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. What do you think the lightnings, thunderings, and voices represent? Judgment. Yeah. There's judgment to come. The throne has now changed to the throne of judgment. God remembers mercy, but now God on his throne is ready to judge an unbelieving world. Remember, all the believers have been taken up, and the only people left at the start of the tribulation are unbelievers. So the storm is coming. Judgment is coming. Again, this points to the fact, I believe, that 
the church is not there anymore. Church is taken up, and God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. He, he removes them first, just like he did Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, ambassadors. If a country has ambassadors in another country, that means they have some kind of relationship. They have an agreement with each other to trade, to do things with each other. When a country withdraws their ambassadors, it's usually a precursor to war. This means we're separating. We're having nothing to do with you. So God takes his ambassadors out of the world. He takes the church out of the world. And there's war coming. There's judgment coming. And the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we've seen the Father. We're going to see the Son soon. And here we have the Holy Spirit in a visual form. He's also called the seven spirits of God in Revelation 1.4 and Isaiah 11.2, the, the sevenfold spirit. And here it's represented by seven burning lamps. In other passages, the Holy Spirit is represented as a dove or as a flame of fire, like in Acts chapter 2, verse 3. So in the center of heaven, we have the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, John doesn't explain exactly what this is or what it means. However, it could be similar to the sea of brass in the tabernacle in the Old Testament or the molten sea in the temple. So basically you had these lavers or washstands, and the priests would go there for cleansing. And it contained water used for different things, ceremonial rites and stuff. So this may represent, as a type of picture, the sanctifying and cleansing power of the Word of God. The next part, it says, And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and back. Now these are interesting creatures. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Who are these creatures? Well, you go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, and Ezekiel 10, verses 20 to 22, and we have very similar creatures described to us, and there they are called cherubim, or angels. Within the angelic realm, there's different levels of angels, and cherubim are the highest order of angels. Satan was one of these angelic beings, according to Ezekiel 28.14. So what are these cherubim doing? What are these living creatures doing? They are constantly worshipping God. It says in verse 8, they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. So they are repeating again and again, Holy, holy, holy. And it's, it's God's holy nature and character being declared by these angels. And why three times? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what does the word holy mean? It means to be whole not eroded by sin, not falling apart at the seams, not hypocritical or flawed in any way. It means perfect. And it's this holiness, this wholeness 
which causes his cherubim to fall down in worship. They're not robots. These angels are impacted by God's holiness, his completeness, his perfection. Holiness is beautiful. It draws us to God. Now, did you know that God wants us to become holy? Here's an application for us. And as we become holy, we become beautiful. So, what does it say in Peter about the woman of God? She's holy, she's pure, and that inner beauty makes her beautiful. It's the same for the Christian. Holiness is the most beautiful quality or characteristic that we can have. It means to be pure, unblemished, undefiled. Now, God tells us, be holy, for I am holy. So, I want to go into an application here on, for us Christians, what it means to be holy. Because if Christ is holy, then so should I be if I'm a Christ follower, right? So, I'm going to turn to 1 Peter 1 13 to 16. It says, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. I read that again. It's really powerful. Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Okay, here's a command to be holy. All right, God is commanding us. Don't live to satisfy your own desires. You must live as God's obedient children. But why bother? What's the point? Well, if we keep reading, Peter tells us, And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. That's something to think about, isn't it? There is eternal consequences to what we do, say, and think now. Even as Christians, okay, there's going to be a judgment of reward for us Christians. We don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to be at the throne of God and getting, you know, watching other people get those rewards for their faithfulness and realizing, oh, I spent my entire life living for myself and I'm not going to get much. When we get there, we want to be thinking, looking back on our lives and thinking, I made a few mistakes, but I'm so glad for the most part, I really did. I did my best to follow what God wanted me to do. And we'll get that reward. It'll be worth it. So I'll continue on. He will judge and reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. Sojourners, 
For you know that God, and this is the reason, this is the motivation, okay? For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. God paid a ransom. It cost God to free you from your old life. So be thankful. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Wow. God chose Jesus to be my ransom before the world began. That should make me go, I am so thankful. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has demonstrated his love for us. Why should we be holy? It's our response for what God has already done for us. Obedient living, our love for him, is our response for what he has done. It's not just paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was a precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now, here's the glorious thing. Okay, now we might get down on ourselves sometimes because we might be thinking, well, I wasn't really very holy today. And we have days when we're not really holy, right? It doesn't matter how much you fail now, we will all be just as holy and pure as God is when we get to heaven. And that is the work that God is completing in us now, the work of sanctification. Now in verse 8, it also says, Lord God Almighty. The cherubim are declaring that the Lord God is the Almighty One. And it's the same word used in Revelation 1.8. And the Almighty there means the one who has his hand on everything. That is, the one who is in control. So God is in control. In verse 8 it also says, Who was and is and is to come. And this is again repeated from verse 8. And it refers to God eternal being. His eternal essence. His an eternal being. It translates the thought or idea behind the meaning of the name Yahweh or Jehovah, the ever-present or the great I Am. All right, finishing off, Revelation 4, 9-11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So, we're in heaven. Let's just assume that the 24 elders represent the church. What will we be doing in heaven? Praising God, worshiping God. Because it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, the 24 elders fall down before him. And since the cherubim worship God day and night, then so do we. Day and night, we're worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the 24 elders in verse 10, it says, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him. Now what is worship? What does it mean to worship? means to credit worth or worthiness to God. That is, we're saying, God, you are worthy of receiving honor and glory. So the elders are actually giving 
God the credit for their own work and any reward they might have received for their work. And how they demonstrate this is they take their crowns, their victor crowns, and they give them back to God. And this is a practical way of saying, a visual way of saying that my worth, anything that I have, is from you. I don't have anything that is from myself. Everything that I have is from you. I have no merit. I can't take credit for anything good in my life. It's all you. And so we take the reward that God gives and we give it back and saying, God, it's what you've done for me. So basically, this casting down their crowns before God is an acting out of their declaration. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. So if God is worthy of glory and honor and power, then he should get the crown. Now there's a picture here, and it goes back to something that was practiced in the Roman Empire. The emperor of Rome was the big king, if you think of it like that. The emperor was the big king. But there were lesser kings under him. And what he would do sometimes is command these lesser kings to come in before him, and they would take off their crowns and lay them before the emperor. And then he would give them back. So the emperor would give the crowns back to these lesser kings as a demonstration that their crowns, their right to rule, their victory came from him. So, as I mentioned earlier, the crowns represented, are mentioned in Revelation 4.10 are the Stephanos crowns, crowns of victory, not royalty. They're the crowns of achievement that a winning athlete would receive at the Olympic Games. So the 24 elders, representing the church, the redeemed of God, threw away every achievement reward they had received and gave back to God because they knew and proclaimed that he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. So when we get to heaven, we're going to recognize that every good thing we do, that is everything we do that is motivated by love and is according to God's will, it's only achieved because God both gave us the will and the power to do it. And I love this verse, Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. The desire and the power. He puts a thought in your head and then he enables you to do it. He's given us a new heart with new desires that wants to love him and please him. And then he gives us, because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we have this awesome power that if we trust him, if we choose to submit to him, he will work through us and he will accomplish his will in us. So all we have to do is walk in faith and receive the opportunities to serve and obey what God wants us to do. Then when we get to heaven, God reward us what we have done. But we'll get there and we'll say, you know what, God, this wasn't really me. It was your desire and your power. So I'm going to give the credit back to you. I'm going to give this glory back to you. You've given me this glory, this crown. I'm going to give it back to you because it belongs to you. Everything is from you. God is worthy to receive not just some glory, but all glory, all honor, and all power. And verse 11, for you created all things, and by you will they exist and were created. So another reason that we worship God is because God is the creator. He owns us. Like the potter can make anything from the clay, God can do anything he wants with us. Now here's an application. I've got to finish with a few applications. God's right over us as creator is a fact that can be accepted 
and enjoyed. He's my creator. He's my boss. I need to do what my creator says. I need to submit to him. We can enjoy that. We can rest in that and say, it's not my life. It's his. He made me. I belong to him. Or we can reject and rebel against that. We say, I don't want to do what God wants. I want to do what I want. So if we recognize and submit to his ownership of us, and especially that he's ransomed us as well, he not just made us, but he brought us back, then we will experience peace and contentment and fulfillment as we abide in him. However, if we reject his ownership of us and the fact that he's ransomed us, then we will be in rebellion against him and we'll be quenching and grieving his Holy Spirit and so subject, if we're a Christian, to God's fatherly discipline. Now, the King James translation of Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So this just gives a bit of extra meaning to this. For thy pleasure. We were made to bring glory and pleasure to God. And until we start understanding that that's our purpose in life, is to bring glory and pleasure to God, then we will not be fulfilled. Our human nature wants to please ourselves. We want to have pleasure ourselves. But if we are truly following the Lord and submitted to Him, what we will want to do, the new heart that God has put inside of us, it wants to bring glory and pleasure to God. And so as we do that, we will feel and experience that fulfillment as we turn away from pleasing ourselves. And I'm just going to read Romans 8, 5 and 6. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Now, <laughs> I've been learning about training horses, and I learned that until you deal with all the distractions or fears, like my horse was scared of sheep in the paddock. He was terrified of these sheep in the paddock. It was really quite silly. Why is my horse scared of sheep in the paddock? I don't know. <clears throat> I asked him. He wouldn't tell me. He just doesn't talk to me. And then there's attractions. There's the other horses. So he's attracted to these other horses, and he's got this fear over here, and he's just not listening to what I want to do. I'm sitting on his back, but his mind's elsewhere. And so the trainer as like a, a picture of God, okay? The trainer is working this horse. And the way to fix a horse like this, or the way to fix a Christian who has distractions and other loves, is to make it difficult when they go towards those other things. So if you start looking towards those fears or start going towards those other loves, then you just make the horse work and work and work, and the horse will think, I don't want to be here anymore. I'll be happy over here. I'm getting really tired. I'm in cantering, cantering, cantering in circles over there. Oh, let's, let's not go over there anymore. Let's stay over here. And so God disciplines us. And he makes it hard for us to do the wrong thing. He makes it easy for us to do the right thing. He offers us comfort as we rest in him. And that's the way we train horses as well. We want to make the horse want to do what we want it to do. We're not forcing it to do what we want it to do. And God is the same. 
He never forces us to do things. If a horse wants to go over there, I will let the horse go over there. But while it's over there, I will make his life as difficult as possible. Run, run, run. And then when it's, I'll offer it comfort, and if the horse stays and doesn't want to go back, then a horse can experience rest. If the horse wants to go back, okay, let's go back. And that's what we do in our lives. We want those things. We go there and we find it's fun for a little bit, but this is really hard work and this is making my life miserable. And I think I'll go back to where God wants me. So, that's what God does with us. His fatherly discipline makes life difficult and uncomfortable for us as we seek the things we like, humanly speaking, and we run from the things we are afraid of. Basically, we're not focused on God, okay? We're not focused on God when we're loving other things and distracted by other things, fearing other things. We need to learn to trust God and submit to Him. A good example of this is Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus, and she found her contentment and fulfillment at His feet as she sat there and worshipped Him. Another application is from Spurgeon. He says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, have you learnt to cast your crowns at the Saviour's feet already? We're going to do it in heaven, but are we willing to give God the glory now? Am I living for myself or living for God? Am I taking credit for what God does through me or am I giving the glory to God? Am I using the gifts, talents and opportunities that God has given me for my own use or benefit or am I using them for the kingdom? And one final application that brings this whole thing together is worship. What does it mean to worship God? It says they're going to be worshipping God. Holy, holy, holy. Is it just the words? Is it just singing? Or is it more of an attitude? In hermeneutics, which is the way we interpret the Bible, it's the rules we use to interpret the Bible, there's one called the law of first mention or the principle of first mention. And that is God explains what a word is the first time it is used. He gives a scenario, a situation, and we look at that and we understand, okay, well, that's what the word means. It's explained clearly. And then for the rest of Scripture, we know what it means. So the principle of first mention. So when do you think the word worship was first used? It wasn't Moses. It wasn't in the temple when they're singing songs either. It was Abraham. Mm. Genesis 22. It's when God tests Abraham. God is saying to Abraham, who do you love the most? Or what is most important to you? So I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Genesis 22, 1-5. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Remember, this is towards the end of Abraham's life. Abraham has gone through many trials and his faith has been growing. So God doesn't give us a test like this at the beginning. This is what we look forward to at the end. We can pass these big tests. We become strong in our faith. So, verse 2, Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, that's Israel, Jerusalem, Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire 
and a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there. And then we will come right back. So, what did Abraham do? Did Abraham get there, get out the guitar and sing songs with Isaac? (laughs) No. Abraham tied Isaac to the altar, lifted up the knife, or arranged the wood, tied him to the altar, and was about to plunge the knife into his son, but God stopped him. And we know the story. You can read it in Genesis 22. So what does this have to do with worship? How does this situation define the word worship? Well, in Genesis 22, we also have the first use of the words obedience and love. Worship is love demonstrated by willing obedience. It's not grudging obedience, but rather we willingly obey anything that God desires for us simply because we love him more than we love anyone or anything else. It could be something we need to give up or something that we should start to do, that God is asking us to do. Now we have a great example of this in Jesus Christ. Jesus said on one occasion, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Matthew twenty six thirty nine in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's about to go to the cross. Think about how he's feeling. Is he feeling happy? Now the author of Hebrews tells us that when he came into the world, he said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. That's Hebrews ten seven, Psalm 40. So the Apostle Paul sums up in these words, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's Philippians 2, 7 and 8. And I quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The cross is laid on every Christian. The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's discipleship. Discipleship is learning to surrender, to die to self. So why is it that so many of us are not willingly obedient, that we have areas of our life where we are not willing to surrender, to submit to God? It's like the horse. We don't have our minds fully fixed on God. We've got things that we want to do, things that we don't want to do, things that we're scared of. And we're not fully submitted to God. And instead, we have our eyes on the world, and so we waver and are tossed to and fro. Now, go back to heaven, chapter 4. Why is it so easy to truly worship God in heaven? Because our eyes will be fully fixed on him. We will not have our sin nature or the world or the devil to distract us. God is right there in front of us. We will see him and know him as he sees and knows us. So that's what worship is. It's willing obedience. So let's not deceive ourselves. If we are not living willing obedience to God's will for our lives, then we are not true worshippers. Or we are not worshipping to the degree that God desires. We are all on this journey. Worship is not something you do on a Sunday morning and you sing songs. Worship is this place we come to where we submit to God and choose to obey. 
It's not about emotions or how we feel. Like the latest thing in church, as we went through a few weeks ago, they would have felt good as they went to church and sang the songs, but they weren't truly worshipping God in spirit and truth. They were just having a nice time. God was outside of that church. He said, I'm not, not, not. can I come in? Sorry, we're too busy singing these beautiful songs. So again, think about how Abraham would have felt at this time. Abraham wouldn't have felt good or happy as he walked up that hill, bound his son, and prepared the wood and lifted up the knife. I don't think he was singing, la 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 la, I'm so glad I get to kill my son. You know, no. But by his actions, he was proving to God and the rest of the world, because remember, we're all watching this as we read it, that God meant more to him than his son. Do you understand that? Abraham, by his actions, was proving to God and the rest of the world and to himself that God was more important than his son. Abraham loved God more than he loved his promised son, Isaac. So a true worshipper will obey God from the heart without any doubt, without any hesitation. And that's not talking about emotions, okay? It's talking about actions. No matter how hard the request might seem, and regardless of how they feel. It's important that we remember that love is a verb. It's not a feeling. We don't feel love, we do love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So the evidence of our love for God is obedience to God. And I told this story before, it's a true story. And this guy was talking to his pastor, and his pastor said, what are you going to do this weekend? He says, I'm going to be plumbing, I'm going to be fixing drains, I'm going to be painting, and I'm going to be pulling weeds in the garden. And the guy goes, oh, that's terrible. And he goes, no, it's great. I'm going to be working with my fiancé. And the guy goes, oh, okay, well, he's in love. So when we love someone, there's nothing that's too hard, there's nothing we don't mind doing, nothing we won't be willing to do because we love the other person. And again, just to remind us, the secret to being a true worshipper is surrender to God. To say like Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And honestly, this is the hardest part about being a Christian. This is where the true battle lies. And I pray that we'll be willing to humble ourselves before God and seek his will, his glory, his pleasure, and his kingdom instead of my will, my glory, my pleasure, and my kingdom. I need to learn to surrender, to remember to surrender, to be willing to obey. Now, what's the secret to willing obedience? Well, it's to love God. How do we love God? Well, we need to understand who He is, what He's done for us. How do we grow in understanding of who God is? Well, we need to be reading the Word of God. God speaks to us through His Word to tell us about Himself. So this is where it all starts. It all starts as we read the Word of God, so we can understand more about God, so we can love Him more, And then we can, because we love him, we will want to obey him. So our relationship with God, our prayer, Bible, fellowship, and evangelism is where it all starts. So don't neglect your relationship with God. We are going to be worshipping in heaven. So let's start worshipping now. Let's continue that. Let's continue to surrender. Like in heaven, we're going to be casting our crowns down. Let's start doing that now. Father, I thank you for this beautiful picture of surrender and worship, willing obedience, Lord, not based on how we feel, but based on what we do. And we do what we do because we love you.
And Father, it's really challenging. Help us not to be discouraged when we fail, but to realize that as there was the jasper, so there was the sardis. The ruby there, the blood of Christ, symbolizing the blood of Christ, which washes away all our sins and makes us accepted in the beloved. So I thank you for all this beautiful picture, Lord, and your covenant promises are still there. Your grace is still emanating from the throne, even in the midst of judgment. So help us to remember you, help us to draw near to you, and help us to cleanse ourselves from any unrighteousness, as the Bible says. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.